0: Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have to sing about you. And now we're going to hear about one of those almighty acts that you did. One of those fabulous stories of Scripture where you did one of the most incredible, amazing deeds to just change a whole bunch of lives. We pray that you would let us learn and be changed by a result of this Bible study this morning, that we would see your power, we would see your majesty afresh, and that we'd walk out and we would live differently, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Join me in 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. We are way back here. What happened? There we go. We're back to here to a certificate of stupidity. Okay. I'd like to read with some accounts of different individuals that had this idiot award given to them for things that they did. Here is one. The fellow who writes about it says, I'm a medical student currently doing a rotation in a toxicology at the poison control center where people call in and they say that we've had an issue or something happened. Today, this woman called in very upset because she caught her little girl eating ants. I quickly reassured her that the ants are not harmful and there is no need to be bringing the little girl to the hospital to have her stomach pumped or whatever. The woman calmed down and at the end of the conversation, she happened to mention that she had given her daughter some ant poison to eat in order to kill the ants. I told her with that in mind, she better bring the girl in to the emergency room. Dumb award, right? Stupidity award. Here's another one of an uh, account. A guy walked into a little corner store with a shotgun, demanded all the cash from the cash register. The cashier put the cash in the bag, and the robber saw that there was a bottle of scotch there on the wall that he wanted behind the counter. He told the cashier to put it in the bag as well, but the cashier refused. She said, I don't believe you're over 21. The robber said he was, but the clerk still refused to give to him unless she said he would give her some identification so that he could prove he's over 21. So he reached into wallet, grabbed his driver's license, handed it to the clerk. She looked it over, agreed that the man was, in fact, over 21, put the scotch in the bag, and the robber ran off from the store with the loot. The cashier promptly called the police, gave them the name and the address of the robber that got off because it got off the license. He was arrested within one hour after the robbery. Idiot robbers! A pair of Michigan robbers entered a record shop nervously, waving revolvers. The first uh, revolvers, yeah. The first one shouted, "Nobody move!" His partner moved. The startled bandit turned and shot him. <laughs> 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 they were caught. This is on film. Seems that this guy in Ar- Arkansas wanted to rob a liquor store. So really, really bad. He decided he would just throw a cinder block through the liquor store window, grab the booze, and run. So he lifted up the cinder block, heaved it over his head at the window, but the cinder block bounced back, knocking him unconscious. It seems the liquor store window was made of of pexaglass. The whole scene is caught on videotape. These people get the idiot awards. I'll share some more with you this evening of some others who got the same type of thing. If we were going to give this award in Scripture, we would give it to the people who are talked about in 1 Kings 8. They would include the king and the queen at the time, Ahab and his wife Jezebel. They were leading the nation into a stupid act, worshiping other gods rather than Jehovah, the Lord God Almighty. The people could get the idiot award as well because they in mass have followed the king and the queen into this Baal worship. Well, God had sent a prophet. Three and a half years before we read First Kings 18, God had sent a prophet, his name is Elijah, to say to the king and the queen, God is displeased, God is going to deal with you, he's going to judge you for this. In fact, he's going to hold back the rain for three and a half years and bring all kinds of problems upon you, just like what was predicted in Deuteronomy 11, that if people walked away from the Lord, that the nation of Israel would suffer droughts. So for three and a half years, there was a tremendous drought in that region of the world. The prophet who had given the message had gone off into hiding at a couple different different spots. And God tells him in the beginning of chapter 18, come out of hiding, go and meet the king. It's time that you meet the king and the rain return and judgment falls and the people are going to have to decide. So Elijah comes out of hiding. He runs into king, he meets with King Ahab and they have this appointed time that they gather and they have a conversation when they start getting together. We pick up in chapter 18 verse 17. It came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said unto the prophet, you, are you the one that troubles Israel? And the prophet Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you, your father's house, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, that you have followed Baal. Now, therefore, send and gather to me all of Israel unto Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal, 450, and the prophets of the groves. That would be the prophets of Asheroth, or Ashtaroth. It's said both ways. 400, which eat at Jezebel, your wife's table. So Ahab sent all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And so here he is. They have this contest that Ahab is agreed to. Now, the contest is real simple. The contest that they're going to have between... the, the different parties here is going to be a contest with Elijah on one side and the 400 prophets of Baal, the four, 450 prophets of Baal, the 400 prophets of Ashtaroth. In other words, it's going to be God, Jehovah versus Baal. And they're going to have this contest, and, ba- and Elijah proposes they each build an altar. And then they put their sacrifice on the altar, and then they stand back and call upon their God to send fire from heaven to eat up the sacrifice. Which Whichever God answers, that God is going to be the new God that the people will worship, whether it be Baal or Jehovah, in the sense that they're going to give full-hearted worship towards those individuals. And so what happens is he proposes this contest, and it's going to be this God versus God contest between the king and the queen's gods... And the God of Elijah. Now my question that what they do is going to be basically, you know, this contest that, oh, and I need to remind you, this is not Elijah's idea. Go all the way towards the end of the story and look in chapter 18, verse 36. When Elijah is praying at the end, he says at the end of verse 36... It says, let's catch in the middle, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are the God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things, what's your last words you have? At thy word, this is all God's idea. God has told Elijah, this is the contest that I want to do. My question, several of them, is why do this type of contest? Why is it something that they need to propose? Well, several things come to mind. Now, we already mentioned that the king and queen have forsaken and gone to Baal worship, and they have gone against the commandments of the Lord, and the people have followed them. But then he gets the people together, and this is interesting, verse 21. Elijah and the king has gathered all the people. Elijah stands before him, and he came unto all the people, and he says, How long halt ye between two opinions? Does anybody have another translation for the word halt? Anybody have something different? How long do you limp? It's the idea that you cannot, you're, you're like this. You're not sure, you're not sure, you're just kind of, you're unsteady in your feet. And he says, you as nation of people, you are unsteady, you're, you're going bad, you're vacillating. Which should we serve? If the Lord be God, then follow him. But if Baal be your God, then follow him. And the people answered him, not a word. They couldn't say anything. He's saying, basically, you, you've had two choices. Why is it that you, you can't even say anything? I'm challenging you, and I have to ask myself this question. Why didn't they answer? Why didn't they speak up for Jehovah? Why didn't they speak up for, for the Lord God? Because some of them people are obviously thinking, we shouldn't be doing this Baal worship, but we're, we're vacillating between. What would cause the people to remain totally silent? Any ideas? Fear? I think that's legitimate. Who would they be afraid of? The king. What did the king already do to the the other prophets of, of God, of Jehovah? He's killed them, right. We read that in earlier in chapter 18 that he has killed all the prophets. There's been persecution been going on. Anybody that stood up for Jehovah uh, has been killed and or going to be killed. And so there's an absolute fear of Ahab and Jezebel. That would be legitimate. Could it also be they were uncertain? They have been, so, been taught this for so long. Remember, Ahab's father, Omni, also had Baal worship. So it's been a generation and a half that Baal has been promoted. Do people wear down over a period of time? Yes. Okay, so they've been hearing it. A new generation has been hearing it in their schools. They've been hearing Baal, 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 and they're beginning to wonder about whether there be a God. By the way, is that true in America? That there is a wondering whether God is real by even a new generation? Sure, that's what's happening. There is also this factor. Could the people be enjoying Baal worship? Could they be enjoying, now you, you would, you, you, can you imagine this? They, in Baal worship, there was, he was a fertility god. So part of their worship would involve drinking, sexual activities. Are you telling me people might enjoy that? In Immorality? Yeah, yeah. And so they're, they're, they're struggling with it. And so God is saying to these people, I want you to make a decision. I want my children, my people, his the Jews. I want you to declare yourself. Are you for me or are you against me? Okay? And how did Jesus put it? A house cannot be divided okay? Now you're either for me or you're against me. And so that's what he's doing at this point. And so he's proposing this contest because the people need this contest. It is God's idea, remember, to test the people. What are they going to do? Now my question is, goes along with this, is why fire? And why Mount Carmel? Okay, the proposal is build the altar, call down fire. Now why would they do fire? Okay, that's interesting when you go back and study a little bit of ancient Near Eastern culture, that in the, that area of the world, ancient Near East is the a in that part of the world, that, and, and beyond even throughout that whole Mediterranean world, fire was commonly accepted as a heavenly voice if you could have any kind of fire, in fact there is multiple different archaeological digs that have shown this that in some of those ancient temples they would have an altar but underneath the altar there was a tube that led to chambers below that they could blow the fire up into the altar and it would look like it was self-igniting, like a divine fire. It was done where the priests would fool people. In fact there's a Christian writer from early 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 on in in, uh, Christianity that writes, I speak as an eyewitness in the altars to the idols there are beneath the altars channels underneath a concealed pit. The deceivers enter these they blow up the fire up from beneath the altar by which many are deceived and believe the fire comes from heaven. And they've proven that and they've seen where you have the burn marks where those channels those tubes are scorched. So it was a common practice and understood even in pagan worship that fire was basically a proof of divinity. And so they would use it in their, in their mysticisms and in their worship There's multiple instances in Scripture where fire was used to represent God or God's approval of something. Let's go all the way back in the Bible. Can you remember some instances where God made himself revealed and it had to do with fire? One of the first in Moses' life. Moses and the burning bush, okay? When Moses had that burning bush experience, when the Jews were walking through the wilderness, what was going on? the pillar of fire through the wilderness that you read about in Exodus and in through Numbers. The very first time that they built the tabernacle and uh, Aaron was to make an offering, the very first time that he made an offering, fire comes down from heaven to show that I have approved of this system of sacrifice that we read about in Leviticus chapter 9. We read about fire coming when Gideon, we talked about this just months ago, when Gideon made his sacrifice, And he puts it on that altar after the angel had told him that you're going to lead. He said, make an offering. He makes the offering. And then the angel put out his staff and the entire thing lit up it was a miraculous fire. Again, Gideon was, it was confirmed to him, this this was something with God. When Samson's parents, we talked about this as well in our series on Judges, when Manoah and his wife make the sacrifice as they're directed by the angel, then the angel steps into the fire and ascends up on high, involvement with divine approval with fire once again. When David had, uh, had done his numbering of the people, and there was a plague upon the land, David has to stay the plague. He buys the uh, Ornan's threshing floor and what he's going to do with that is he's, it's going to be the home of the future temple and he makes a sacrifice there to stop the plague. And it talks about fire coming down from heaven and taking up his sacrifice, showing divine approval, the plague stops, and God, God has accepted it. There's one other time in scripture that we have this fire taking place, fire coming down from heaven. It's at Solomon's dedication of the temple. When Solomon dedicates the temple and they're in prayer, all of a sudden fire comes down from heaven, laps up the sacrifice, and then the fire moves into the temple. And they can 't enter into the temple because it is filling the temple place that the day of um, dedication the day of inauguration of the temple. And so you have frequent occasions where God approved and did fire to show that this was something divine. Well, they picked up on that, the ancients picked up, and they used it as well. So it would be a, f- a contest that everybody would say, yeah, that's a good tool. Mount Carmel is an interesting spot. It's close to the sea. It's actually a ridge of mountains, of, of hills that go there, and uh, one of the highest is called Mount Carmel, but it's a whole area of about 13-mile ridge that's, uh, that basically divides the the entire nation of northern israel right in the middle so it'd be a convenient spot to gather the people it's a spot where there's a high ridge there. In fact, there's one along that whole plain, there's one elevated ridge that they call in that part of the world, they call it El Moraca. It means the burning, and it is the traditional site of where this contest takes place. And there's a ridge up on top, and then there's a 200-foot face of the wall that is straight down. Somebody could stand up here and speak as well as, remember, what do they do to the prophets at the end in this story? They cast him off this, this wall. So it seems to me this is probably the spot, though we are, we are uncertain which one of that series of ridges it is. This could be the very, the very spot. We know that there was an ancient, uh, spot for worship up there, a Mount Carmel for Jehovah. And by the time we come to this story, evidence has also been given in other historical writings that they had converted this Jehovah altar to an altar of Baal. So by the time Elijah comes on the scene, it has been used for both. They're limping. They're, they're between the two opinions. Is Baal going to be worshipped here? Is uh, Jehovah going to be worshipped here? Now the question I have that goes along with it, why would Ahab agree to this? Okay, God's idea. He's going to lose. God proposed this. We know he's going to lose. We know the end of the story that he does. But why would he have agreed in the first place? I think it all has to do with what Elijah revealed to him and how Elijah set this up. It's several things have come to mind. Okay? He needed and wanted an end to this drought. He, economically, for the people's sake, for his, for his country, the drought has to end. And so basically Elijah is in control. We're going to have a contest. He's got to agree. He's got to work with Elijah to get the end to the rain because Elijah is the kingpin humanly speaking to ending the drought. We know as well that what Elijah proposes to him from Ahab's point of view Ahab has all the odds in his favor think about it I want to be I want to have a contest with you You, would you take me on me against 450 of your prophets well statistically who's going to lose so Ahab's 450 hired prophets plus his wife's 400 prophets this is a no-brainer for him he's going to win just by odds and sheer number as well there's some other factors that go along with this we don't know how strong his belief in Baal. How much was him as far as the religious motivator for Baal, or how much was his wife? We, the reason I question that is Ahab is not the strongest uh, backbone man that we have ever read about. As the story will unfold, his wife is telling him what to do. His wife is controlling him a lot, as we'll see in the weeks ahead. And so she could be wearing the royal pants in the family, and it could be a lot of her doing behind this, and he is simply, what of her? What could a henpecked husband become? Can I use the word fearful of his wife? Okay. Okay. See, it is so foreign to you, none of you even answer that. You can't imagine somebody living that way. Isn't that a blessing? So what happens here is he's afraid of his wife, he's afraid of what could happen possibly. He's involved in this worship, but there's some other things that come along with this. Okay. Either way, the contest favors his God. Do you see God of Baal, who is also called Hadad at that time? He was the God of bringing all that's needed. He's a farm God. Everything that's needed to produce the crops sun and rain. He's the weather God. This contest favors his God because his God's specialty is dealing with things that are hot, like the sun. And the the zenith of the day would be his moment. He could bring rain, but he hasn't produced it for three and a half years. But this guy, this God, is the God that this is one of his specialties. Bringing fire, controlling the sun, and controlling lightning and thunder. In fact, ancient records indicate that they said Baal talks through lightning. Well, his God, is, his God speaks through lightning. He can surely send a bolt and take up the altar, you know, and take up the sacrifice. So it favors his God supposedly. And the way that it's proposed, Elijah says to Ahab's prophets, you go at, from morning all the way through the day, okay, and your God's going to be at his strongest when his sun is in the sky. So again, his God He's got the numbers. He's got the God who produces lightning. He's got the God who is, this is the special part of the day that his God can do the working. And then on top of that, his wife, uh, historical records from Josephus indicate that his father-in-law is the high priest of Ashtaroth. He's got inroads to the gods. His father-in-law is the king, the, the one you know, mediator to this other goddess who is the wife of Baal. So this is, this is all in his favor. Everything is, is stacking up. So Ahab agrees to it. He's going to win. You know, this, is, this is his vaguest bet that he is, it's a sure thing, according to in his mind. And so what happens is Elijah has proposed this. Elijah takes several steps to make sure that none of the people there are going to say afterwards you did some type of magic you you can you know, you did something so that you'd fooled us okay he's not going to be the magician that's going to be tested okay he's going to make sure that everybody knows he is not pulling their leg at all what steps did he take look at the proposal that he makes in this contest. It's really interesting. It's one of those, it's one of those uh, stories that there's little bit words put in here that are huge, but we often gloss over. Number one, let's think about this. He proposes rules, ground rules for the game that are very clear. He isn't one of those individuals that he's playing a game and then it's going to change the rules to become in his favor. Nope. from the very beginning, he has said, here's what's going to happen, very simple, very direct. Everybody knows it. So nobody can say to him afterwards, you change things in your favor. He doesn't do it. There's another phrase that shows up in verse 23. And it's right at the very beginning. And it's for me, you probably have marked it, I didn't in studies past. Let them therefore give us two bullocks. Elijah does not pick the animal. He makes sure somebody else picks the animal. Nobody's going to claim and say afterwards that Elijah rigged the animal, rigged the sacrifice. In fact, look at the them. Who is he talking about? Well, if you read the rest of the passage, the them seems to be, I will let the other side pick what animal or animals we're going to sacrifice. So they're not the ones that they can claim, I did some trickery. You go pick the animal. It's up to you. You bring me one, you choose one, and I'll take the leftover. So very clearly, nobody's going to accuse him of rigging this. As well, he makes its statement twice in this text, which means that if he's repeating it, it has some substance. Twice he says, I am alone, you are many i 'm alone, you are many. everybody knows everybody 's clear i don 't have somebody helping me out i don 't have some people hiding in the rocks i don 't have some people hiding behind. you know we haven 't dug a channel underneath here with a secret chamber it 's going to be very clear i 'm all by myself i 'm doing this all just me under the direction of God. He gives these prophets plenty of time. Read the story that what happens and as they say, okay, let's do it, it says, verse 25, he says to the prophets of Baal, choose you, the bullock for yourself, you go ahead and you cut it up, do whatever, you are many, call on the name of your gods, but put no fire under it. They took the bullock which was given them. They dressed it. They called on the name of Baal. What's your Bible say? From morning until when? When? until noon, okay, and then they keep on, and then it says, verse 27, it came to pass at noon, that Elijah mocks them, and he makes some statements, verse 28, they cry louder, they cut themselves after the manner with knives and lances, and then they, till the blood gushes out upon them, isn't that just very, very picturesque, of what they're doing, and it came to pass when midday was past that they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, five or six o'clock. They're going all day long. Then he gives them plenty of time. Nobody's going to be able to say to, to Elijah, you, they could have done it if you just give them a little bit more time. It is, it is, they are doing their thing so long, everybody else is taking a nap. They are doing their thing so long, everybody knows it isn't working. Very clear. Very clear about it. The other thing he does is in verse 30. In verse 30, when it's his turn, look what happens. He says the first words to the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him. He draws them in so they can watch exactly what he's doing. Nobody's going to be able to say later on, you did something when you built the altar. You, you rigged something. They are looking. They are on top of him they are watching they are seeing exactly what he's doing and then as he's building the altar and he's got it built he then is we read the story verse 31 he took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of jacob unto whom the lord god came saying "Israel shall be thy name with the stones he rebuilt literally he rebuilt the altar in the name of the lord and he made a trench about the altar as great as would be and he gives a measurement he put the wood in order. He cut the bull in pieces. He laid, him on the, he laid the bull on the wood. He said, fill up buckets of water and poured it on the sacrifice. Okay, there's four barrels of this water and on the wood. And then he said, pour it on the sacrifice and then do it a what? A second time and then do it a what? Then do it a third time. And they did it the third time. The water ran round about the altar and he filled the trench also with water. Okay. The idea is that he has put this sacrifice. He has he has saturated it, not just once dousing it, and it drying out quickly. It is saturated to the point that the water is running off. The ground is so saturated that it's no longer dissipating. Remember what's been going on for three and a half years. There's been a drought. That 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 area around the altar. It is so waterlogged at this moment. There is no doubt. There's nothing he could have done to rig this. It is, it is now completely. The, the animal is soggy. In other words, Elijah has done everything he could so the fire wouldn't light. He has made it an impossibility. His trench, his animal, looks like a lot of your yards over the last few days. It is just absolutely drenched. Drenched. And so he's done all these things, even though the water is scarce, and we have all those details, that there is no trickery. There's nothing coming up out of the ground that's making it through this this area. There's no way this can light except to be a miracle. There's no doubt. The people understand this. They've seen it. They're watching him. There's no sleight of hand. So the prophets of Baal did do their thing. We read about what they did that the prophets of Baal they made their sacrifice, they start doing a loud, frenzied, you know, activity, and you know how it usually is stated. Okay, don't confuse me with the facts, just get louder to win the argument, that's the way they worshipped. They just—they didn't worship a real deity, but they, they made it look like, oh, this is phenomenal, and they're loud, and they're carrying on. They're jumping on the altar. They're jumping off the altar. They're cutting themselves. They are so sincere, but twice in the text, it makes the comment, there was no voice, nor any that answered. Twice he states that. Again, he wants every one of us to understand there was no response, there was no bail, there was no activity. Now at noon he mocks them. You need to understand that there's a possibility of what, what he means by he mocked them. Could be that he's just sitting there and the statements he makes are just in jest. Hey, better be louder, he can't hear you. Hey, he's on vacation. And all those comments, it is interesting that in ancient canaanite writings, they do refer to the idea that at times, gods did go on trips, and you would have to speak loud. Gods did fall asleep, and they recommended that at times you increase the volume of your worship. They did recommend at times, and um, I I don't want to be too crass here, but... um, but where he's going, he's talking. He is pursuing. He is in a journey. Uh, per eventually he sleepeth. The pursuing in the Hebrew is translated elsewhere. He's in the bathroom, and so he is saying that this God could be preoccupied, and he is. He is. You, you got to And it, his mockery could be what what they have recommended in their in what they told their people to do with the deities. And so they're doing this and, and he's he's, you know, making his statements and nothing happens. Again, it's stated, nothing at all happens. And they've had all day long. It's gone on. It's carried on. Then Elijah does his thing. We read what Elijah did already. That Elijah, his turn is at the end of the day. He grabs the 12 stones and rebuilds the broken altar. The 12 stones representing Israel very clearly. Notice that in the text. We're coming back to that. He takes, digs the trench. He puts the wood on top, puts the animal, and then he soaks it. And then he prays. A very short, direct prayer. One of the shortest prayers in Scripture that just reads this. It says, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you you have turned their heart back again. That's all he prays. But then the most amazing thing happens. It says the fire of the Lord comes down from heaven. Was it a bolt of lightning? Was it something that all of a sudden just came down in a pillar? We don't know the exact details, but we know that this fire consumed the animal, the drenched animal. It consumed the wood, the drenched wood. It then consumes what else? What else does the passage say? The stones. It burns up stones. This is a pretty hot fire, folk. Okay. And then what does it do? It takes out all the water. This is a laser beam that just wipes everything out. And it is so... It is so amazing. It's up on that mountain. Imagine, imagine, we're all down here. We're looking up at that 200 feet thing. We see him at the very edge. Be careful, don't fall off, don't fall off. He's like, he's like some of you people when I'm walking these steps. Just don't trip, don't trip. And you know, Elijah, be very, very careful, be careful. All of a sudden, out of heaven comes this huge crack. And then there's this fire that comes down. And then there's nothing left. And the people fall down. Notice the response. It says, when the people saw it what do they do? They fall on their faces and they said, Jehovah, Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. Yeah. Who won the contest? God. Okay. Now this story is written for, for us to learn things. It was done. All of that was done for the people at that moment to learn something. What were they to learn? What was it that, is there one lesson? Is there more? I think there's several lessons that stand out that are very important, that are, as we read the story, and we know the historical account, we can make the same conclusions that they needed to make. Number one is very simple. God's real. The people can say what they want. They can doubt whether Jehovah was around. Jehovah just proved himself. Jehovah is real. That was the issue for the people. Was Jehovah the real God? There is no doubt in their mind as soon as they saw this, they said, Jehovah is God. Jehovah is God. He is real. He is not a counterfeit. He is not a, make, a make-believe. He is not a figment of our imagination. He is not some clergyman that are hired to give us a story. He is real. And by the way, is this a fact today? God is alive and real. Even though in America, are there people doubting the existence of God? Yeah, and by the way, even if you sit here in this morning and say, well, I'm not convinced. God is real. God is absolutely real. There are multiple historical proofs. This is just one of them. And I remind you that according to scriptures, God is so real that he says there's a certificate for stupidity to those who say there is no God. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. You and I would be absolutely ignorant spiritually to just say, there's no God, I don't have to worry about him. Where did you come from? You say, well, and you can do all these, you can have all these arguments, but eventually you get back to where is the beginning of life? It is with God. God is creator. We are going to stand before him and one day where every knee shall bow before him, including even those who doubt whether he exists. You're going to bow before him one day. He is real. Something else that stands out about this passage, he's powerful. He can do the incredible. He can do anything he chooses to do. That, by the way, is sovereignty. Sovereignty is God controls everything he chooses to control. God's sovereignty is God can do anything he chooses to do. Does God absolutely control everything throughout the world in the sense that he controls every decision you make? I don't think so. I think we have free will. But he is sovereign in that he can direct, he can, uh, he can uh, or- orchestrate things, he can bring us to a point, but when it comes to creation, he controls every part of it. When it comes to historical events, our God is able to monitor and, and manage so historical events will fall into line with him. He is that sovereign. And he is not afraid to allow us to have free will, to choose. And yet he stays in control. He is an amazing God. Can He suspend natural law? Can all of a sudden He can say, "Okay, I'm going to bring fire from heaven." That's not the norm, folk. Can cans doused objects that are soaked? Can they burn up? That's not the norm. We know. Anybody been camping? You know, that's not the norm. God can do anything. He is able to make and This is the point of the passage. He is able to make things work with what He has predicted. He told Elijah to do all this. He told him he would bring the rain. He told him he was going to bring revival. He managed the situation to bring about what he has predicted that would come to pass. And Elijah was just operating by the word of the Lord and God was able to bring his word about. Which, by the way, gives me great hope. When God predicts our future, and what will happen here in the world? How God predicts that there's going to be a monetary system. There's going to be the mark of the beast. Is God mistaken? No. Can God pre- when God predicts there's going to be a rapture of the believers taken out of this world at any moment, can God make that happen because he said so? Yeah. 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 Our God is powerful. That's the person we're singing about this morning. Almighty, unchangeable God. You know, God is not a Duracell battery that runs out of power. Okay? God is unchangeable. He was powerful then. He is powerful today. That's the God we worship. Something else that stands out. God has our back whenever we do what he commands. God has our back whenever we do what God commands us to do. You see in the text, and I've already pointed out, Elijah did all of this in explicit obedience to the Lord, at your word. At your word, I made this contest, proposed it. At your word, I doused the animal. At your word, I made the trench. The whole contest was God's idea. And he put Elijah out in front, and it's as if Elijah is carrying the brunt of all this. But God has his back. When he did what God wanted him to do, God came through to provide what Elijah predicted at the mouth of God, at the behest of God. That same thing happens in our life. How does it look that God has our back today? Well, God tells us to give charitably, to give a a sacrificial giving to the Lord's work. And then he turns around and says, and I will supply all your needs. And then we read in Philippians that God absolutely meets the needs of those who are charitable. So you and I at times say to ourselves, well, you know, if I give to the offering plate, then I don't have enough money for my own bills. Our God has our back when we do what he says. Here's one for you. When we give out the word of God to that co-worker, to that family member, and you say, they will never get saved. So why should I even bother? They are so hard-hearted. But God says, my word shall not return void. Where I am lifted up, I will draw people to himself. Now, they have free will. But does God work in the hearts wherever his word is given? The answer is yes. Yes. That he will work and he will, he will convict. And so our job is not to be afraid of giving out the word, but rather give it out and let God work. He has our backs. Let me give you another illustration. God tells us that when we do right before him, he will help us to be at peace with even people who don't like us. People who might have conflicts with us because we're doing what's right. He has our back. We don't operate in fear of what somebody might say. We don't give up because they might get more upset. We do what's right and let God have our back and protect our reputation, protect our relationships. You're saying, okay, I'm praying, and I'm asking God for some incredible things, okay? When we pray according to His will, He says He will answer, that He will have our back. That he will help us through those difficulties if you have a besetting sin that is devastating your peace and taking away your joy, and you just can 't get a handle on that attitude that desire that that that, re, that words that you say or what you do and it 's addicting it 's controlling you, and you say i can 't get a hold of it, remember. If we confess our sins, that is, if we repent, he is faithful and just and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because he has made us free from sin. He has our back. That when we do what's right, he will give us victory over sin and temptations in our life. You say, okay, wait a minute. My home, it's a difficult thing. And I know I'm supposed to be able, I'm supposed to submit to my husband. And I'm supposed to love her like Christ loves the church. And I'm supposed to follow my parents. And we're supposed to raise our kids and teach them all things. God has our back when we do what is right. Even though you say, well, this, if, if, if I submit, it could, it could lead into some difficulties. If I love her, she might take advantage of me. If I follow my parents, they might have some, something dumb that they might want me to do. God will work in our hearts and he will have our back if we do what's right. We have to stop manipulating situations and become obedient believers. Do what God commands us to do and let God have our back. We'd like to grow. I know ways that we could grow this church. They wouldn't follow the word of God, but we could grow this church. We need to just stop and say, wait a minute, the way we're going to grow is by just doing what God said. Preach the word, preach the word, preach the word. Not everybody's going to like it, but God's going to have our back. God will take care of it. We do what's right before the Lord and we are obedient and God has our back. It happens at work. You say, well, if I, if I you know, if I might get in trouble at work and, and if, I, if they fire me, they'll give me, give me a lousy you know, testimony, or a lousy recommendation. Listen, if you and I do what's right, and in this text it's talking about honesty, not purloining Not being the ideas uh, of not stealing, not robbering, not cheating somebody. That if we do that, even at the workplace, God will have your back to protect your reputation and the reputation of the gospel. Doesn't mean you might not have trials, but God will have your back. What an amazing thought for these Jews. Because remember... Remember what we said? They probably weren't choosing Jehovah because they were afraid of what would happen with Jezebel. God would have their back. God will take care of you. God will provide if you just do what's right. Can you give another thought? Though patient, God will destroy those who reject him. The reason I say that is because of the stones. Do you remember in the story that we read... When Elijah is building, this, building the altar, okay, this is all a, mar- a point of grace. Even giving these people a chance to repent, and they haven't after three and a half years. They haven't moved a, an inch. They aren't back. And he says, why are you halting? Why are you halting? Probably some are saying, well, maybe the drought is Jehovah. And Elijah had predicted that. Maybe we should go back to Jehovah. But if we worship Baal, and they're, it, why are you halting between two opinions? You've got to decide, and he gives the positive by giving them grace and being patient and showing the fire. But in that same fire, there is a negative. You better obey and choose right. The reason I say that is because of this very fact. When he is building the altar, how many stones does he pick? Remember, we read it. How many? 12. Why did he pick 12 stones? Very clearly, one for each stone tribe of Israel. By the way, remember at this moment, two of the tribes are a separate nation. God hasn't rejected the other peoples and he hasn't rejected the ten tribes up north. He still sees them as one. And he puts the twelve stones there. And it's very clear. They understand what Elijah is doing, coming near. They understand that this is a representation of the, of the tribes. What happens to the twelve stones? When it's all said and done, if there's ash, there's ash. What does that say to the Jewish people, the 12 tribes? What could I do to you? I brought you into this world. I can take you out. My fire of grace can also be a fire of judgment. If you choose wrong, you could be destroyed. What a lesson for the Jews. Join me for just the last few moments. Go to John, the Gospel of John, and watch what Jesus says with this in mind about choosing rightly. In John chapter 3, John chapter 3 is most famous for what verse? 316, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not but have... Oh, and we love that first part. We love that first part about whosoever believes should not perish. God so loves the world. Look at the very last few verses. In verse 31, he that comes from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He that comes from heaven is above all. Double emphasis, he who came from heaven is sovereign. He is all-powerful. He is God. God. And what he hath seen and heard, and he, that he testifies. And no man receives his testimony. He that received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is real or true. For he whom God hath sent speaks the words of God. For God gives not the spirit by measure unto him. God loves the Son and hath given all things into his hand. Again, an emphasis that Jesus is God. Jesus is powerful. Okay? He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see that everlasting life in heaven. But what? The wrath of God is abiding on him. Okay? Jesus is God. Jesus came from God very clearly. Sent representing God Almighty. Jesus is all-powerful. Whether you want to believe that or not, this is what the text says. This is the historical Jesus. Belief in Jesus providing salvation is God's requirement to having eternal life. Not baptism, not going to church, not holding a Bible in your lap, not learning the Ten Commandments, not trying to keep the Ten Commandments. Belief that Jesus is the way to heaven, and the only way to heaven is how we get into heaven. Believing on Him. Trusting Him for my eternal life. Trusting what He did, not what I do. Trusting what He provides, not what I can conjure up. Trusting Him. Believing Him. Putting my whole faith and trust in Him is how we get eternal life, everlasting life. It's very clear. But the text also says, refusing to put your faith in Christ the wrath of God abides. And in this epistle, this book, he's making it very clear. I've written these things so that you might believe. You have a choice. You have a choice belief in Jesus Christ or not believe in Jesus Christ. It's like the choice follow Jehovah or follow Baal. And the modern day Baal would be do your own thing, trust in yourself, don't put your faith in Jesus Christ. How long will you halt between the two opinions? How long until you put your faith totally in Jesus Christ? Your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed.